God created the heavens and the earth. And on that first day, God created light. And the scripture says he separated the light from the darkness and he looked upon it and it was good and there was evening and there was morning one day. On that second day, God created the atmosphere or what the Bible calls the heavens, an expanse that separated the waters above from the waters below. And he called it heavens. And he looked upon it and saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the second day. On the third day, God created the dry land and he separated the waters from the waters with the dry land. And on that dry land, he caused plants to grow of every kind. Such beauty, such incredible diversity and, and beauty that God put in plant life. But not only were they beautiful, but they were also practical and they served many, many purposes. And God looked upon all of that and he said that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning a third day. On the fourth day, God created the sun, the moon, and the stars, and all of the heavenly hosts. And in that, God looked and saw the beauty and the purpose and the reality and the significance of what he had done. And he said, it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, a fourth day. On the fifth day, God filled the waters with animal life. And the waters teemed with life as every variation of fish from the smallest minnow all the way up to the largest shark or even mammals such as the great whales teemed throughout the waters. And God looked and he said, that is good. And there was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. And then on the, or that was the, on the fifth day. And then on the sixth day, on the dry land, God created animal life there as well. And every diversity of animal that lives on the dry land came to be, and God looked upon it and said it was good. But as his crowning achievement on day six, God created man in his own image. And when God looked upon all that he had done in the six days of creation, and the crowning achievement, the great glory of man who was made in his own image, God looked upon it and said, that is very good. And on the seventh day, he rested. And that, my friends, is Genesis chapter 1 in a nutshell. But if you turn the page to Genesis chapter 2, just in the very next page, for the first time after everything being so good, for the first time in all of history, there is something that God recorded as being not good. You'll find it in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. You see, mankind was created for a purpose, and man was created to be relational. And so when God looked upon a single solitary man, realizing that none of the animals were proper companions for him, none of the plants were proper companions, none of the, none of the seas or the, or the planets or the stars were proper companions, that God said, it is not good for man to be alone. You and I live in a society that highly values independence. And, and 
We love the idea that I'm my own free agent. Nobody gets to tell me what to do. I'm not dependent on anybody else. I can do my own thing, believe my own way, walk my own walk, and I'm in charge of my own life. But the funny thing is that with all of our value of independence, God never intended anyone to live independently. We were created to be interdependent, woven together. You and I were created for community. And when we lack that community, when we lack that essential weaving together of our lives with other human beings, there's something terribly, terribly missing. And every time we pull back from community and every time human beings have tried to do life on their own, it has always gone badly because we were created for community. Uh, let me uh, give you an example of this. In the mid-20th century after World War I, all throughout Europe, there is so much death and devastation. There were orphanages needed, and they propped up all over Eastern Europe, orphanages for children whose parents had been killed primarily in the war. And, and not all of these orphanages were created equal. Not every place had the same budget for these orphanages. Not everyone was able to take care of the orphans in the same way. Oh, they all got clothing. They all got food. They, they all uh, got shelter. They all got their basic needs met. But not every orphanage had the staff that was able to care for these young children relationally. Not every orphanage had enough people to hold all of the babies that needed to be held. So children were not being held, they were not being played with, they were not being nurtured in some of these orphanages. In others, of course, it went better. And, and as sociologists began to study this in the mid-20th century, they noticed something, that in those orphanages that were understaffed, where the children had not been held, where they had not been nurtured, where they had not been played with, where they had not been encouraged relationally, that not only were they stunted emotionally, not only was their growth interrupted psychologically, but their, their growth was interrupted physically. And as they grew into teenagers and to early adulthood, most of those who had not been held, had not been nurtured, had not been rocked to sleep and all of those kinds of things as infants, their, their physical growth was stunted. Many of them never reached the height of five feet as adults. And they wondered what could have caused this, and they and they did a study and they discovered that the difference had been that nurturing, that relational touch, that physical care that you receive from relationships with other people. And they came up with a term to describe it. It's called failure to thrive syndrome. And there were thousands, tens of thousands of people throughout Europe after World War II who dealt with failure to thrive syndrome. All because they were lacking those relationships at the earliest points in their lives. Well, these days in America, we have a whole new version of failure to thrive syndrome that is attacking us. Uh, especially during this time of COVID. There's been, as you know, well-documented, severe, severe increase in the numbers of people who are struggling with depression. There's been a huge increase in the amount of substance abuse that is being reported. There's been a huge, huge increase in suicide rates during 2020. Uh, families are breaking up. There's physical, emotional, mental abuse going on in households. 
People are suffering tremendously and failing to thrive as a result of this lack of community that so many of us are dealing with, even as we deal with COVID-19. It is hurting us not to be able to pursue healthy community and relationships with people during this time. So yeah, it's COVID-related, but we can't blame COVID for the whole thing. This de-evolution, if you will, of our society has been going on for decades. I mean, it doesn't take a genius. You just look back, say, say to the 1950s. In the 1950s, families were the cornerstone of society. Communities were important in the lives of just about everybody. They were the central structures of society. In general, there were shared values. Not everybody saw everything the same, to be sure. But in general, there were shared values in our society. In general, there were ideals that were held up by almost everybody in the culture. And people lived interdependently to a great degree because of those shared values. Well, we all know that the 60s brought some social upheaval. We all know that during the 60s, there was a general weakening of the American family. We all know that during the 60s, there was a general rebelliousness against society. And that led into the 1970s, which sociologists have aptly named the me generation. Because it was in the 70s that many uh, advancements, if you will, uh, came about that made it possible to live however you wanted to live without facing the same kinds of consequences and the social stigma that you would have faced before. There was radical self-expression, the, the removal of the consequences of antisocial behavior, and it all became about me. And the, and the theme of the 70s was something like, if it feels good, do it. The theme of the 70s was something like, look out for number one. And the 70s were the me generation. The 80s brought to us the New Age movement. And in the New Age, people began to look not outwardly for truth and reason and purpose in their lives, but they began to look inwardly. And this radical independence grew and gained uh, momentum as people began to think the answers were within and they could find their answers within themselves. And in the 90s came personal computers. <laughs> And with personal computers, the wealthy in the early 90s began to get computers in their homes, which were fascinating and took up their attention and their time. By the mid-90s, many, many people, at least in the United States, had their own personal computers. The internet hit, and people began to get on the internet in, in huge numbers. And all of a sudden, the way that we interacted with other people changed dramatically. All that happened in the 90s. But over the last 20 years, relationships have been completely redefined. Like literal Webster's Dictionary uh, definitions of words like family have been rewritten. So uh, the, the family ties that used to hold us together have been to a greater degree than ever abandoned. There's a mass exodus from the church in anything that involves organized religion in this country the last 20 years. People don't join community groups. They, they, they are home. They are often just staring at a device. And they're not interacting with people except online. And 
And many of those things are neither good nor bad in and of themselves. It's how we deal with them. It's not that the internet is a bad thing. It's a wonderful thing if used right. But there are consequences and there are costs. And the result of the last 20 years of people just, just isolating themselves and living independently has been incredible high rates of loneliness, despair, depression, discouragement, things of that nature. So this is an ongoing trend. And in 2020, to a great degree, the whole thing has just been exacerbated by this virus, this shutdown, this needing to separate ourselves from one another for health's sake. And it's harder than ever to live in community. But God warned us about this. Remember, we were created for community. I hope you have your Bible today. I want to encourage you to open to the book of Matthew. And in the book of Matthew, which is the first book of the New Testament, go to chapter uh, 22 of Matthew. In Matthew 22... I want to read to you a passage that for some of you is very familiar, but if you'll just turn there and follow along as I read, I'm reading from the New American Standard, Matthew 22, beginning in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And with all your mind, this is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. In other words, Jesus is saying, on these two commandments depend everything that the Bible teaches. And these two things come down to two different kinds of relationships. And I want to illustrate this for you and help you remember it by thinking about the cross. If you think about the cross, right, there is a, there is a vertical part of the cross. That's your relationship with God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. We have to be in this vertical relationship in order to live abundantly. But on top of that, he says, there is a second commandment. He was only asked for one, but he said, you can't separate these two. There is the vertical relationship, your relationship with Christ. But there's also this horizontal relationship, which is your relationship with other people. And if you ignore a relationship with Christ, or if you ignore a relationship with other people, you will lack the key elements that it takes to live a successful life. Life, So it all boils down to relationships. Now, turn over to Matthew 16, just a couple pages to the left. Go to Matthew 16, and let's look at another familiar passage, beginning in verse 13. Matthew 16, 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Verse 18. I also say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. 
on this rock, on this statement that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not even prevail against it. What is this great indestructible thing that uh, Jesus calls the church and he says that even hell itself will not be powerful enough to overcome this church. It's an indestructible force. It's a living thing. What is this church that Jesus is talking about? Well, people have lots of ideas. If you ask the question, hey, what do you think of when you think of church? You're going to get all kinds of answers, not all of them positive. Some people are going to talk about buildings. Well, you know, uh, down the street from my house, there's a church with a steeple and some stained glass windows. That's what I think of when I think of church. Other people are going to talk about programs and, and the events that they attend and things that they go to. Hey, it's time to go to church. Let's all get in the car. It's time to go to church. Other people are thinking in terms of activities, the things that the people in the church do together or for their community. Other people, when they think about the church, they're thinking of structured organizations with bishops and pastors and priests and things of that nature. What do you think of when you think of the church? Because I'm here to tell you that whatever else you may think of when you hear the word church, it is all about the relationships. The church is the living breathing body of Christ. It's made up of individuals who are living in radical community together, unlike what anybody else has ever seen. And it's those relationships, that radical community, that God has made strong enough to withstand the onslaught of hell itself. Jesus wasn't talking about buildings and programs and systemic structures when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He was talking about us, us, the people that have been called to follow Jesus. Now take your Bibles, if you will, stay in the New Testament, go to the right, several books, then find the book of Colossians. Once you get to Paul's letters, it goes Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So turn to Colossians. I'm going to give you a second to get there because I want you to see this. I want you to highlight it, underline it. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. Now the men's Bible study, we just started a study of Colossians. But we haven't gotten to verse 24 yet, so I'm going to steal the thunder of whoever's going to be teaching on that that week. Here's what we do. Colossians 1, 24. Now... I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, Paul says. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. I want you not to miss what it says in verse 27. Paul, referring to the church, he talks about Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is our hope of glory? It has to do with Christ in you. Christ in who? Now, let me just give you a quick little Bible lesson here. 
this you need to understand. Oftentimes, most of the time, in Paul's letters, which are written to congregations primarily, most of the time in Paul's letters, he will address the letter to the entire group collectively. And then when he refers to them, he will use the Greek word for you, the singular word for you. Right? There is, there is a singular you, and then there's a plural you, which is like, you know, y'all. He, he uses the singular word. When he says, Christ in you, the hope of glory, he uses a singular word, which doesn't fit. And he does it in Galatians, and he does it in Ephesians, and Philippians. He does it over and over and over again. He uses the singular word, which seems like the inappropriate word because he's speaking to a group. Why does he do that? Because what he's trying to say is that you are an individual, but your, your definition, your connection is found in the fact that you're a part of the body of Christ. There is one body of Christ and it involves all of us and we can't separate ourselves from one another we can only think of ourselves in terms of that connection and we're going to get into that in greater detail in the next couple of weeks but for now um, let's see if we can't get a better understanding of what God has in mind when he calls us into these key relationships called the church keep going to the right in your New Testament until you find the book of first John. Now, last couple of weeks we've been in First and Second Peter. If you just turn just past Second Peter, you're going to come to First John, and I want you to open to First John chapter one, and this is John's introduction to his letter. This is the Apostle John, and this is his introduction as he writes First John, chapter one, verse one. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. He's speaking of the manifestation of Jesus. Verse 3. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. You see how Christian fellowship works? It's subtle, right there buried in verse 3. It is a connected group of relationships. In order to have fellowship with one another, we have to first have fellowship with God. That vertical relationship, fellowship with the Father, fellowship with the Son, fellowship with the Holy Spirit. We have to come into a personal vertical relationship between us and God. But when we do that, at the same moment, we come into this magical, unbelievable, unbreakable, indissoluble relationship with the rest of the body of Christ. Again, verse 3 what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And if you're going to have fellowship with us, it has to be fellowship with the Father and with the Son. It's all woven together. There is no separating this. What I'm telling you is this. We have to be in relationship with one another if we're going to be in relationship with Jesus. The early church could not conceive of an individualistic approach to life of faith. But the same, sadly, cannot be said for the 21st century Western church. I read a Gallup poll recently where 82% of Americans said 
they are convinced that they can arrive at their own religious views without, without regard to a body of believers. Over 80% of people say, I don't need to do my spiritual thing with anybody else. I'm just going to do it inwardly. It's going to be me and whoever I decide to call God, and that's going to be my religious experience. Almost everyone agrees that we're spiritual. The question is, what do we do as spiritual people? And over 80% of Americans say, I don't need you to do what I need to do spiritually. That helps you to understand why people who are outside the church are not breaking down the doors to get in, doesn't it? They're convinced that they can figure it out for themselves by looking inwardly. And even those inside the church often have a consumer mentality, that sort of what's in it for me. I want to choose a church based on what's in it for me. And this fascinates me because if you ask people, and this poll has been done over and over and over again, if you ask people who are looking for a church, what is the primary thing you're looking for in a church? The primary answer is fellowship. The single most common answer people give is, I'm looking for fellowship. And that is strange because it seems that real fellowship is the last thing people are willing to invest their lives in. They say they want it, but they want it to happen automatically. They want it to happen almost magically without any investment on their part. People are taking the same approach to church as they do with their dating relationships in the 21st century. I mean, it's look at the church and either swipe right or swipe left. That's how people are looking at it. Now, if you happen to be too old to understand that reference I just made, let me give you one that's for you. The mentality that people have when they think about church is a McChurch mentality. They're looking for the McChurch. They're looking for the place where they can drive up, make their order, and get things the way they want. It's a consumerism mentality. Churches are becoming retail outlets offering goods and services, and people are looking for the best and most goods and services for the smallest cost or the least investment. And the current situation of COVID-19 and the isolation that so many of us are dealing with is just making the situation worse, obviously. I mean, most of what is being done uh, for um, church ministry right now, a lot of it is just being done online, and people could just sit there with their clicker and change channels Find what I like. I don't like what that preacher is saying today. I don't like the music at that church. I don't like the, the, the way they talk to me at this church. So I'll just change channels. But according to Scripture, that kind of community doesn't come from a drive through online, Amazon-style, shop-at-home approach. We're never going to have the kind of community that the Bible describes that way. It happens when we go out of our way. It happens when we wade through the muddy waters of life and relationships with people and get some dirt between our toes and get out there and do life with other people. And that's not easy. We have to invest in that vertical relationship. We have to invest in that horizontal relationship. I keep using the word invest because it costs you something to experience life to the fullest as Christ designed us to live. Let me put it this way. You can't do genuine Christian community in your spare time. 
So even in a time like this, when our ability to gather together is severely impaired, we have to find ways to do life together. We have to. But you don't experience genuine fellowship just by being a part of a good Bible teaching church. You have to build the relationships. It doesn't happen magically. It has to be an investment that we make. Now, the news is not all bad on this front, even during the time of COVID. There are literally hundreds of people watching this right now who don't live anywhere near the address of the facilities of Grace Fellowship. There, there are people in other countries. There are people in other states. There are people up and down California who are, are becoming a part of this church without ever having set foot in the building. It's amazing the number of people that are being reached, not just by this church, but others, through effective online ministry. So that's a very, very good thing. But it comes with a challenge. We have to figure out how we can have real fellowship even when we're not gathering together, even when we live at a distance from one another. And that's not going to come easy. It's, it's going to take commitment. It's going to take sacrifice, creativity, trial and error. We're figuring this out. But it can be done. And we are committed as a church leadership team to making sure it happens. That's why we're going to be offering online grace groups for people who live far apart from one another. It's an opportunity to have fellowship. And by the way, if you've signed up for a grace group, thank you for your patience. We're almost ready to get that launched and moving for those of you who are trying to sign up for new grace groups. But even those of us who live near each other, we're going to have to make greater efforts than ever before to build the kinds of genuine fellowship and relationships that we need with one another. That's why I'm doing this short series of messages on community called We're in This Together. Because it's not like we have a choice. We simply can't live the abundant life on our own. You were created for community. I once read a story about a, a young adult, a young man who who came home to his parents' house one day to visit his folks and have a barbecue. And as he and his dad stood out by the barbecue manning the coals, uh, they got into a conversation. The father asked the son, hey, how's church going? And the son kind of shrugged and said, you know, it just isn't great. And he, and he went on to talk about all of the things that were bothering him. There were things about the pastor he really didn't like. There, there, were, some, there were some things about the pastor's personality that just rubbed him the wrong way. Uh, some of the people he just didn't click with. Um, he, he talked about how the location was, wasn't convenient and oftentimes it took too long to get there. Um, on and on and on. He didn't like the service times, blah, 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 blah. He said he was just staying home at this point. He was just staying home and trying to do his relationship with Jesus on his own. Well, as the father was listening to his son talk about his disillusionment and the difficulties of actually having a vibrant church life, he just took the tongs and reached in to the barbecue and took out one of the coals. And he set it on the brick planter right next to him. And by the time 
his son was finished complaining about what was wrong with the church, that coal had burned itself out. While the other coals that were together were raging. He didn't have to say anything. He had made his point. Guys, we can't survive, let alone thrive, apart from the vertical relationship with Christ and a horizontal relationship with one another. We can't do this alone. You were created for community. We're in this together, and it's harder than it's ever been. So for the next several weeks, we're going to talk about what does God's Word have to say to us about how to make community thrive in our lives so that we can experience the abundant life that Christ has in mind. I hope you'll join us for those messages. Father, today we want to just say thank you. We want to say thank you that you paid the price for us to have the vertical relationship and that with that comes these horizontal relationships. And we confess that relationships are not easy for us and they're getting harder as the society changes and as we deal with things that get in the way. But we ask you, God, to, to, to shine brightly in our own lives, to nurture the relationships that each of us individually has with you and at the same time to nurture the relationships that we need to have with others. Father, give us true community. Help us to experience you as we walk in that community. And we ask these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.